gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now, here's our show. New Orleans of the mid-1970s had an indefinable spirit that permeated the city. It was wild, beautiful, and at the same time, unpredictable. Into this came the New Orleans Jazz basketball team. Only the second NBA team located in the South, the team became the embodiment of the fun-loving, flamboyant attitudes of New Orleans. As one writer put it, everybody has come back to the old town full of the jazz, and they promised to knock the fans off their feet with their playing. Indeed, they did. And it was the flashy ball control, passing, and arching jump shots of a true Southern icon, Pistol Pete, that defined the team. The game was fun, and the crowds were equally as fun. Pete Maravich had the ability to do anything on the basketball court that could be done and that he wanted to do. Maravich. Boy, he's got all kinds of moves. What move doesn't this guy have, Joe? Well, he can do it all. I don't know how you stop a guy like that. It was just an incredible experience. Up front to Jimmy McMillan. He drives. Off the glass, no good. Coleman rebounds. That was fine defense by Maravich. He was the franchise. say 27 points for Maravich and we're five minutes almost six minutes from halftime <laughs> it was something something else another steal we was a close-knit we was like a family first time the jazz was in oh there's a foul on deer pistol feet really played which like a fiddle that time it was magical I tell you, if there's such a thing as a ball average, Pistol will have to cool off pretty soon because he has not missed too many shots this season. I think he defies that law and a few others sometimes. Otto Moore gets fed in the post, back to the pistol, goes on the drive right to the basket. It is good, and he's fouled. I don't know how you stop him. <laughs> he is too much. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm running out of things to say about Maravich. You can fly through the air. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well now, welcome, welcome, welcome. How is it going, everybody? My name's Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available. Happy 2022. Hope it's going well for you so far. It's a new year, and uh, we continue in our, I guess, fifth year or so of this uh, extravaganza that we like to call Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Hope you had uh, good holiday uh, tidings and uh, you're still standing and you're still staying healthy and watching out for uh, the latest variant in this uh, uh, medical curse that uh, just seems to be uh, our fate these uh, last couple of years. Uh, we're here to help you get through it a little bit with a little diversion uh, this week is uh, no exception, luckily. Uh, our guest this week is uh, Professor Thomas Aiello, and we're going to be talking about um, pro hoops and its relationship uh, with the Deep South. And uh, it's a fascinating and uh, a revealing uh, conversation. Uh, Tom Aiello is uh, a professor uh, of, uh, let me make sure I get his uh, official title uh, correct. He's professor of history and Africana studies 
at Valdosta State University down in metropolitan Atlanta. We're going to be talking about the intersection of professional basketball hoops and uh, that in popular culture, uh, race, uh, the Deep South. Uh, Certainly, that means uh, two cities in particular when it comes to uh, the current day NBA uh, as well as the, uh, don't forget it, the American Basketball Association, the cities, of course, of New Orleans and Atlanta, the sort of, uh, I guess, the uh, the pioneering cities, if you will, of pro basketball, uh, and why it took so long uh, to gain toeholds there. And you can imagine how racial history in the Deep South uh, played a role. Um, and perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps the greatest of white hopes, uh, as it was positioned back in the day, a guy named Pete Maravich, a very crucial figure uh, in cementing uh, toeholds and footholds, if you will, for pro basketball in both of those cities, Atlanta and, as you heard in that clip, the New Orleans Jazz. Remember them? Yes, kids, the Utah Jazz had a predecessor. It was a handful of years in New Orleans. You ever wonder why the Utah Jazz got their nickname? Well, it's because they domiciled themselves originally in New Orleans, where Jazz is actually a real and uh, historical thing. Um, I digress as to uh, as to why that nickname still stays there. But um, Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, for you youngins, uh, one of the uh, NBA best 75, as announced a couple of months ago, was part of the actually NBA top 50 announced uh, a number of years ago. Uh, he will be forever enshrined as one of the greatest basketball players to ever play the game, both not only in the NBA level, but at the collegiate level as well at LSU. Uh, but he is a seminal figure in our conversation coming up with Tom Aiello. Uh, his book is called Dixie Ball, Race and Professional Basketball in the Deep South, 1947 to 1979. Uh, lots of uh, subtext uh, uh, and uh, cultural um, uh, components to this story. Uh, but Pete Maravich uh, kind of crystallizes a whole bunch of it. Um, but let me sort of specifically talk about that uh, that clip. So that was from a, a documentary film called The Night of Pistol Pete uh, by Mendelssohn Entertainment Group. I found it on YouTube, of course, like we find a lot of our clips, not all, but but most of them. Uh, and in particular, that's a it's a wonderful documentary, an hour long uh, that talks about and commemorates uh, that special night when uh, the night was February 25th, 1977. Uh, the uh, broadcast, I think, on WOR, Channel 9, uh, Madison Square Garden Productions, um, uh, was the original broadcast. That's when Pete Maravich dropped 68 points, a record uh, most ever by a guard at that time, against the New York Knicks, who uh, were not necessarily uh, shrinking violets, per se, uh, that year. I mean, you had uh, Bob McAdoo, Earl Monroe. Tom McMillan, uh, Walt Clyde Frazier, Bill Bradley, uh, even a young, uh, not so young, uh, Phil Jackson, uh, Dean Memminger was on that team. Uh, but to put it in perspective, uh, that game at the New Orleans, actually, I think it was called the Louisiana Superdome, Pete Maravich uh, was 26 for 43 for a uh, 605 field goal shooting percentage as well as going 16 for 19 from the line, the line for 68 points. Uh, And just to put that in perspective, the Knicks that night, McAdoo had 12, excuse me. uh, Yeah, McAdoo had, um, 
28 points. Earl Monroe had 11. Tom McMillan had 16 off the bench. Lonnie Shelton for 17. But I mean, you know, he was Maravich is putting everybody to shame. Uh, on the Jazz, however, the only other teammates of his that had double digits were Otto, Mo, Otto Moore for 10 and Mo Howard, who had 12. Everybody else was in single digits. It was the Pete Maravich show that night, as it was most nights with the New Orleans Jazz, as it was most nights for the original version of the Atlanta Hawks, having just moved from St. Uh, Louis prior and uh, them uh, leveraging the team, if you will, to get Pete Maravich to play there. I uh, don't want to knock Pete in terms of being a team player, but he was a, a prodigious and a unique talent for sure. Uh, and as you'll hear in our conversation with Tom Aiello in just a moment, um, was the, if you will, proverbial great white hope um, and, and all the positive and negative connotations that come with that ideal, that idea. Uh, but the the uh, the reality, I guess, of of the management teams of of, of both of those franchises young and struggling, both of them in the deep South that had a long history with basketball and frankly, also a long history uh, with racism and uh, the realities of trying to market uh, an NBA and, and be uh, mostly uh, African-American uh, player base uh, in the deep South. It's a fascinating conversation. It takes us in very interesting directions. Uh, you will learn a lot from this conversation as I did our conversation coming up with the professor, Tom, Thomas Aiello. Uh, he, the author of Dixie Ball, It's an Interesting and Fun Conversation, coming up in a moment's time. How about a uh, little uh, New Year's uh, discount for you with one of our great sponsors, one of our longest sponsors. It's Retro Royals, RetroRoyals.com, formerly known as 503 Sports, but now the sub-brand 503 Sports is Retro, excuse me, RoyalRetros.com. Uh, is the place to go for, as the name implies, the best in retros from all kinds of teams and leagues in the pro realms, no longer with us for whatever reasons. And um, uh, why not celebrate with 10% off when you use the promo code SEATS at royalretros.com? They call themselves the king of throwbacks and and for good measure. And and one uh, team uh, that you can uh, commemorate this uh, this episode with with a purchase or two or 10 or many as you want at royalretros.com or the New Orleans Buccaneers of the old ABA. They feature into this story as we get into our conversation with Tom in a moment. Uh, but uh, the New Orleans, Bu New Orleans Buccaneers were the first uh, pro basketball team uh, to kind of penetrate the Deep South. And you can celebrate by a couple of different versions with the original uh, cool little cartoon looking uh, pirate guy dribbling a beautiful red, white, and blue basketball. Uh, you can get the shirt in blue or in red, and you can also get the New Orleans Buccaneers jersey uh, in uh, white, I think it comes in, in blue, and uh, in uh, uh, this uh, gorgeous sort of uh, uh, rose-tinted red uh, with the Bucks uh, iconic uh, script signature on it. Get your name on the back if you'd like. Why not? What better way to celebrate not only this episode, but the pioneering history of the New Orleans Buccaneers of the ABA, as well as uh, what came thereafter, the uh, New Orleans Jazz, uh, today's New Orleans Pelicans, uh, the New Orleans uh, uh, Hornets that were uh, sort of uh, there after they were in Charlotte, all that stuff. Let's celebrate a little bit of, of bi basketball pioneering in the Deep South uh, with, uh, uh, with the king of throwbacks at... 
<laughs> Sorry, I keep referring to them as 503 Sports, but they're known as Royal Retros now. And again, it's royalretros.com, promo code SEATS for 10% off not only your New Orleans Buccaneers stuff, but anything else on the site. And uh, we thank uh, our pal Dustin Alameda at Royal Retros for his continued support of the show. We love him and uh, we know you will too. All right, let's uh, segue nice and smoothly, shall we? into a wonderful and uh, uh, revealing conversation about basketball and its history in the Deep South, uh, the pro variety. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, the author of Dixie Ball, here he is, Professor Tom Aiello. And uh, let's get into our conversation we had just last week. Happy New Year. Here it is coming right up. Please enjoy. So uh, let's uh, let's set the table here. Uh, maybe a little background about your uh, your professional life, because uh, you are approaching our little topic this week uh, from more of an academic perspective. But but you know where academia and history and or uh, nostalgia, if you will, kind of overlap. Uh, I'm sure they all bleed in, bleed into each other. But let's at least get a little bit of a sense of. Uh, sort of the starting point and what, uh, shall we say, qualifies you to be an expert on this uh, particular subject, which I find fascinating. Right. Um, so I, you know, it's interesting that sports, not only in the, the, the actual athletic side of the university, but also the study of sports history is often looked down on in the academy just because so many of the, the people who go into academics uh, kind of shunned sports early on. Uh, but I, I have always kind of been involved in it. My uh, one of my first books was was on uh, the Negro Leagues, and I'm still very involved in the, the the advocacy for Hall of Fame status for the Negro Leagues. I've written extensively on that. Um, uh, one of my next books was on the Bayou Classic football game, which is our biggest HBCU football game here in the South between Grambling and Southern uh, at the Superdome every year. I've also, uh, I don't know if you, if you consider it a sport, but I certainly consider chess a sport as well. I've written on chess. I've written on uh, the the history of black tennis in the South and its early professionalization. Um, one of my books is on just a, comp a compendium of sports in New Orleans more broadly. Um, so I, I have a long history of uh, – doing sports history and especially dealing with uh, race in sports because that is that is one of my main subjects. And I, I have spent a lot of my time especially dealing with sports in the South, not only because that's where I'm from, it's also the area that I just know the best historically speaking and where race has mattered most. I mean, the reason why we're having this conversation in the time period that we're having it is because no professional sports would come here uh, uh, until after the Voting Rights Act. And so um, I have written several books on these subjects. Uh, the book that um, I think is most uh, qualifying for, for, for our conversation today was a book called Dixie Bowl about professional basketball coming to the South, which was um, a decidedly big deal considering that of all the professional sports – uh, the NBA was and the ABA as well were, were the two leagues that were most coded racially. And to have them come to the place, the area of the country that was the most coded racially in the other direction uh, was bound to cause a lot of uh, interesting problems. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. And, and football certainly could qualify for that, too. And we've kind of danced around the edges of that and how long uh, right. that took, if you will, and 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 things like George Preston Marshall with the the, the then known as, well, the Washington, what is now known as the Washington football team. Singing right? Dixie and everything at the games. Well, yeah, in essence, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pandering, if you will, to the South. And, and, uh, and from a business perspective, right, it, it made a, a ton of sense because it essentially ensured for a long time in the NFL's history, the Washington team would be basically the team of the southern region of the country, right? So it was almost sort of protectionism, if you will, for the franchise as a as a super regional one versus just one in D.C. No, it was a good idea. And, of course, when um, Dave yeah, Dixon— it's a good was, idea, except he was a racist, but other than that— Well, he was an incredible racist, but, I mean, he's playing to an audience in Virginia and Maryland, a predominantly white audience in Virginia and Maryland, who are very much— creatures of of the South. I mean, there were um, Sons of Confederate Veterans chapters that went to those games relatively regularly from those two states. So we didn't even have to look far into the South to get to get that kind of that influence. But as a matter of fact, when Dave Dixon was trying to argue for a pro team for the NFL uh, in New Orleans and ultimately got it because he facilitated the merger with New Orleans legislators in Congress, the only real holdout uh, pushing back against that was Washington, uh, because they knew that that if Southern teams start becoming a thing, they lose that market. And when New Orleans and Atlanta come into the league, um, everybody was on board. Everybody wanted to move into that market now that uh, civil rights, uh, the Civil Rights Act had passed, except for Washington, for that very reason. You're absolutely right. That's very interesting. Well, before we get into sort of the the the, the setup there that you just got, got us into, I actually want to go back to a comment that you just said earlier, which is sort of this history and um, sports kind of not sort of being a a conjoined uh, pursuit, shall we say, or or sports history, if you will, not taking sort of being taken as seriously, say in the in the academic pursuits of, of history. Uh, they say than other topics. I, 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 it's interesting as a, frankly, a de facto or or by by no choice, amateur historian, right? I, I've come into contact with lots of other, shall we say, uh, amateur historians, and and you know whether that's you know officialized in things like saber and baseball and those kinds of things, or just unofficial, somebody writing a book about a particular team that they maybe grew up with and were fond of and wondered what happened to the players or the league that that was in and that kind of stuff. Arguably, this podcast, right? I, Grew up as a Cosmos soccer fan back in the 70s. And then, but you know, five years later, the league was gone and soccer was dead for 15 years or so. So th th there's obviously other issues floating around. But why do you think this sort of sports thing, aside from sort of the occasional, I don't know, baseball documentary uh, uh, series by Ken Burns, for example, you know, which is arguably taken much more seriously and, and more methodically, why do you think sports and, and history don't sort of why is sports not at a quote unquote higher level than say, I don't know, the 15th book on Andrew Jackson's life? It's a great question. And the, the answer is probably more complicated, but I usually chalk it up to the fact that the kind of people who go into academia are the kind of people who were never really part of the sports world growing up. And so they were probably the people who um, were either bullied <laughs> by athletes or something else. And so they've grown up to kind of resent it. I always try to tell them, though, that you're right about the Andrew Jackson comment that, you know, we, we exalt, for example, religious history. Uh, but any given Saturday in the South, there any weekend in the fall in the South, there are way more people who attend a football game than attend church. 
And not only that, but they go and they paint up and they do all kinds of things and go into all kinds of aesthetics that no one in church in the South would ever do. And to argue that somehow religious history is more important than sports history is to miss the point of the United States. It totally gets wrong um, what cultural history is and what we're supposed to be figuring out about what things mean to people. There are, you know, I remember back in 2008, whenever uh, President Obama was not yet president, he was still the uh, candidate, and the Democratic National Convention held their final day of their convention in Mile High Stadium, uh, outdoors, and it was a big deal, and, and the commentary was all, this is amazing, they filled the football stadium for this event, and I just kept thinking to myself, yeah, the Broncos do that eight times a year. And nobody ever talks about it. And so the idea that politics and religion and other forms of history are somehow more important is really a creature of the kinds of people we take into our business and not the kinds of people, um, uh, not the kinds of actual studies that matter to cultural history. All academia is gatekeeping and the people who get to keep the gates tend to be the kinds of people who resent sports. Um, but I think for all of your listeners, it's it's good for them to know that they are all wrong and that you cannot understand the United States and its history without understanding uh, its relationship with sports, because that has been not only important in uh, religious studies or political studies, but also in race studies and foreign policy. Sports has been the gateway to every important thing that's ever happened in this country. And it's a process, but we're trying to 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 inculcate that more effectively in the academy. Yeah, I guess in a lot of cases, sports can be sort of looked upon as a as, as a uh, as a shorthand or or perhaps even a metaphor or, or some other um, transformative device, frankly, for some of the larger societal issues. Uh, better exactly. It, I mean, it becomes the theater for everything. Um, and you'd be surprised how many people, um, and you mentioned Saber. I, I work with Saber quite a bit, and how many of those people are math people, not history people. They do history, but they're coming from math departments because history departments are, are less kind of willing to go there. It's crazy. It makes no sense. And a lot of the, the sports classes in universities are almost all run through kinesiology departments, almost never through history departments. Um, it's, it makes no sense. It gets well, very frustrating. Well, let's try to make some sense of your argument and your sort of how you frame this one, right? So, I mean, this is not sort of the first time we've kind of nibbled at uh, the issue uh, broadly and and even more specifically by sport uh, of race uh, and sport, whether it be collegiate or uh, professional or, or even more broadly than that. Um, g give us a sense of sort of how you uh, sort of approach this to sort of to sort of frame this. I mean, I think you gave us a few hints already by things like the Voting Rights Act and whatnot. But you're you're talking from, uh, I guess, a personal understanding uh, certainly as well as culturally, uh, a South right that um, has legendarily been, um, you know, has had a a long, torturous, uh, and arguably still uh, ongoing, challenging history with. Uh, with race. And in, in the case of basketball, which I think in a lot of people's minds is still sort of perceived as a predominantly, um, uh, for whatever reasons, African-American oriented sport. The irony, of course, is that its origins were, were anything but that. 
if you look at look back at it. Um, give us a sense of sort of how you kind of sort of framed all of this, and we'll kind of get into some of the gory details as we sort of move along here. Sure. So the South, um, uh, after World War II, was trying to get in on the the rising Sunbelt market that kind of stretched from the bigger cities of North Carolina all the way through Phoenix and Denver and, the, and San, San Diego and places like that. They wanted to get in on that. They wanted to help be part of that new growth. They wanted to attract new businesses and they wanted pro sports, but they couldn't get it because segregation laws were still in place until the mid to late 1960s. And so they would continue to try to do that and fail every time. Meanwhile, basketball develops, you're right, as a as a white game um, in the YMCA movement, uh, starting in Massachusetts, invented by a Canadian, and then moves out from there. And we end up seeing early in basketball, even though Naismith hated it, um, a move to professionalization very quickly. And that professionalization did allow for at least some limited integration, I suppose, in the early 20th century, but that was relatively rare. And so we see a version of what we think of in baseball as the Negro Leagues. We get all uh, black professional teams usually playing um, in the bigger cities of the North usually playing in uh, dance halls after or before um, at before, either before they open or after they close to go along, you go, you get drunk, you party, you dance, and you watch this basketball game. And so they really develop on this separate trajectory. And football, for example, was always seen as a collegiate sport, and college was always seen as a relatively white endeavor uh, in an age before financial aid and everything else. You had to be relatively wealthy to go. And so football was largely coded as a white game. Baseball, of course, has famously had already drawn the color line back in the 1880s. And so that was considered a white game. Both of those games, though, also required equipment. They acquired, they required balls and, and, and all kinds of other uh, things to go along with it. You had to have money just to play, just to get the, the stuff to do it. All basketball required was a ball and a space. And so its main place where it catches on is in urban areas, not college towns and other places like that where there are where there's more wealth. This is catching on in inner cities. It's largely being funded by YMCA gyms in relatively poor neighborhoods. And so early on, it becomes associated very quickly with ethnicity, uh, whether it be Jewishness, Italianness or blackness. Basketball was this urban kind of game. The other difference between basketball and those other sports is that you don't wear a hat or a helmet in basketball. And the players are right up next to the fans. Early on, in as basketball started to professionalize, they would hold the games in these relatively small spaces like dance halls. And so what they would do, and it was very rough. It was, it was there no, no Jordan rules at this period, of course. I mean, everything was incredibly rough. And so they would put up cages uh, around the court like they, like they do in hockey today. And basketball was known as cage ball. I mean, we still hear sports writers refer to basketball as cagers, basketball players as cagers. That's why, because original basketball, pro basketball was played in a cage. And so the fans are right up next 
to the out-of-bounds line. I mean, the ball could literally just bounce off the cage and you could catch it and keep going. And so the fans are right there. There's no nothing to stop them. And so when you combine ethnicity and inner cityness with this, this close proximity to the people who are actually watching, race and ethnicity become attached to basketball in a way that they don't to other sports. And so basketball, by the time we get to the civil rights era, by the time that that starts being a thing, at this point, uh, the NBA is going to be founded in 1950, but it had already been around a few years prior to that under another name uh, coming out of World War II. It is going to have a trickle of black players here and there, but it is going to be a largely white organization. The problem is that if all the great players, all the people that are playing basketball in a way that people want to see are coming out of inner city neighborhoods and college sports, corrupt as it is, is going to want all of those best players, then they're going to go out and start getting the best players, which means they're going to start getting black players. And so we start to see the blackening of college basketball first, and that is going to move to the blackening of professional basketball. So much was the NBA worried about this blackening that they actually moved from 11 to 12 players in the early 1960s specifically to make sure that teams could include a white guy on their, at the end of their bench um, so that white fans who were the predominant payers for tickets were still white people would be able to see a white face on the bench even if all the star players were black. It was an incredible worry for the NBA and they started constantly looking for the great white hope to try to figure out a way to say, hey, look, white people are still good at basketball too. I mean, the era of Mikan had ended. Uh, the era of Jerry West was coming to an end. And they started to look for who is going to be, we're not yet to Bill Walton. So they're starting to look for who's going to be that next guy. At the same time, they look at the South, especially at, at 1964, when we get the Civil Rights Act, kind of the end of first wave civil rights. And they say, well, now we've got this whole new market of people who are clearly sports crazy. If you look at any college football stadium, you know these people are nuts for sports. They're growing these cities in big ways. We have this whole new market now. Maybe we can move into there. And so it creates this potential clash between a, a South that is trying to grow but is still super racist and very much not over any of the eruptions that have happened recently. And an NBA that is trying to shed its black reputation to become more mainstream. And it, it creates all the things that we'll eventually talk about here in a few minutes. Well, yeah, I, and the irony is already starting to kind of creep in, right? So, uh, let, let's so let's the, now juxtapose that. Now, you mentioned the Voting Rights Act, obviously, uh, you know, a, 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 a landmark achievement in in legislative history, and you wonder if <laughs> if this country can ever uh, achieve such uh, uh, you know progressive uh, uh, you know uh, achievements going forward. But you know, this is not a political podcast by any chance. But you know, I don't know it's. Um, I think everybody would agree that it's uh, becoming more of a challenge. But you juxtapose that, uh, so the, the the broader dynamics of what's going on in this country, uh, especially as it relates to race and all the 
the various things we remember, uh, you know, from from the television imagery um, back in the day, some of it quite horrific, of course, uh, and the tragedies of Martin Luther King and all that stuff. Um, but juxtapose that against, say, uh, where the history of uh, professional basketball was at the time, the NBA, right? Not even, if you will, about 10 plus years old, still kind of finding its sea legs, but uh, not only the NBA, but also professional sports, uh, finally starting to recognize that there are places outside the Midwest and the Northeast to domicile teams. And with television becoming such a central part of the entertainment experience in this country, right? Uh, television uh, exposure and and money and and national markets, plural, that are, are frankly untilled. And I think that the, the most logical uh, progression of that, right, in in the in the late 1950s, with you know the the Dodgers and the Giants move bolting west to, to California. Um, but it's interesting when you look at some of these other sports. The NHL didn't really expand until 1967. After after uh, there were only only six teams for you know decades, right? Decades. Um, they had, but they had a minor league system that put, at least put teams in towns. That's true. Whereas that, some of the other sports, like basketball, they really didn't have that opportunity. Right, but but when you look at some of the initial uh, expansion that occurred in the NBA around that time in the 60s and early 70s, right? Um, you you notice a lack of a certain region of the country, right? I see San Diego that uh, ultimately moved to uh, Houston, and I see Seattle and Phoenix and Milwaukee and Cleveland and and Buffalo, which ultimately came to West Coast and 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 the like. But it took until, frankly, um, the 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 challenger league known as the American Basketball Association, and 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 you may know we've had uh, a couple of conversations with the now late. Sadly, Dennis Murphy, the founder of that league, um, but it, it took uh, a, 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 a you know a, a, a hugely entrepreneurial and an arguably risky proposition uh, to for them to actually place one franchise in the Deep South that the NBA had avoided for for, for many many years. Maybe you can kind of sort of set the tone for that because I don't think that was just because of uh, uh, nobility or. Um, good, uh, you know, just good naturedness, right? It was uh, the desire, I guess, probably to tap into some type of market that had been largely untapped by pro basketball. Absolutely. I mean, and if you are creating a new league like the ABA, you want to go to places where you don't have to compete with an established league. You have this perfect confluence of places in the Sun Belt. All of these economies are booming after 1945 um, in major cities of the South. Also in the places you mentioned, out west, Denver, San Diego, places like that, Phoenix, which are these growing cities, urban markets, desperate to look like they matter, desperate to look like they have legitimacy in the one place they feel like they can get into sports. And that is originally, you're right, going to going to um, create uh, either expansion in the established leagues or team moves like famously the Dodgers um, or the Giants or uh the St. Louis Browns or the athletics or anybody else. All these teams are just going to try to take advantage of these new markets. And they're being drawn by tax havens, by new stadiums that places like New York simply can't build for them. 
And, you know, in most of the places in the South, I mean, they had lived ever since the days of slavery on this kind of don't tread on me kind of attitude that they use as an excuse for their racism, this notion that we believe in small government and we believe in not having institutional controls. And so therefore, you know that you're not going to get any state income tax. You know you're not going to have to worry about any of those things. And these places will bend over backwards for you. And the NBA was reluctant uh, at first to go south simply because um, uh, of the blackness of the league. But they had some experience of it already. One of the kind of great champion teams of the 50s was the St. Louis Hawks, um, owned by a guy named Ben Kerner. They had started off. Uh, in New York, they had moved to Illinois for a while, moved to Milwaukee, then Illinois, and finally down to St. Louis. And St. Louis, while we don't think like Washington D.C., we don't think of it as a southern city per se, but it's as close as you can get to a southern city without being a southern city. Bill Russell constantly complained about having to play in St. Louis uh, because of all the racial epithets he received in Keel Auditorium where they played, and so. There was some fear about the NBA going to that place. The NBA we look at today as a relative inevitability. The pro basketball had at least eight different pro leagues before the NBA, all of which had failed. And so they knew that just because they had a relatively good run early on that didn't guarantee anything. And they were worried about the possibility of racial incidents, um, kind of drawing a highlighter over their racial coding and making it more challenging them for them to break into white audiences. The ABA has nothing to lose. And the great irony of that, of course, is that the ABA is going to be the league that openly celebrates its blackness. That is going to be the league that says we are black and we are proud. That is the league that is going to identify most with the budding black nationalist movement, that is going to let its players wear giant afros, that is going to do all these kinds of experiments to say, well, if the the, the dominant nature of pro sports is to be predominantly white and to think like that, we're going to go the other way. The NBA had already been called to the carpet. Sport Magazine had already done this kind of blistering expose of the NBA in the early 1960s that said the NBA has a race problem. They are looking for a great white hope. They're adding players to the end of the bench simply so they could get white faces. White people aren't going to the games. The average attendance at NBA games in the early 1960s was 5,000 and much less in some of the smaller markets. That was only pulled up by Madison Square Garden. And because of that, it's going to give the NBA these these qualms about doing that, whereas the ABA has nothing to lose. All they know is if we can create some kind of rival and if we can create any kind of interest, we can force a merger. The point from day one was to force a merger. And so why not go to places that the NBA isn't. If we go to try to compete with them in the same cities, there would be no incentive for a merger. The only incentive for merger is to make basketball look like baseball, to spread it out across the country. 
And so the ABA is going to initially put teams on the periphery of the South in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in Houston, Texas. Um, And pretty soon, uh, eventually, because of lobbying by the city, um, they are going to end up going in straight into the Deep South in New Orleans. Uh, There's a bit of uh, of, um, prelude, though, to that particular New Orleans situation, because I guess the Hawks themselves in the late 60s, I want to say it was like in an early 67 or so, were getting a little uh, itchy to get a new arena. The the the, uh, the Blues had just come in there in the NHL, and um, I think Kerner was looking to, to kind of maybe build his own facility to kind of keep his revenues going and whatnot. And, and there was a, a brief flirtation, I guess. They were up for sale, and the eventual owners of the Buccaneers franchise in the ABA, including a one Morton Downey Jr., odd uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. risk of history, um, was actually one of the bidders, I think, and I guess the deal fell apart. And ironically, Atlanta could have been sort of that first, if you will, franchise that may have, uh, or re- relocated franchise that might have broken the ice in the South. But ironically, it was uh, those folks that brought it to New Orleans first. A, a pretty interesting um I guess, pathway to kind of start to uh, sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, melt that ice, if you will. It really is. And and frankly, there was a lot of talk in, the, in New Orleans about not wanting an ABA team, that if your goal is to be major league, if your ultimate goal, now that you, now that you have uh, the Saints, and now that you've gone to the big, big leagues, what you really want is um, uh, the NBA. And that was on everybody's mind. They wanted the NBA. They were building this massive new arena for the Saints, and they needed something else. But before that, they couldn't get the Hawks. So they end up settling, again, Morton Downey Jr., the same guy who later on will make his name as a racist right-wing talk show host, um, will go to the ABA, get a team, bring it to New Orleans, and... The Buccaneers are born. Basketball comes to the deep, pro basketball comes to the deep south. The problem is there wasn't a Superdome yet. There wasn't any real arena whatsoever. The team ended up playing in Loyola Fieldhouse, uh, where Loyola University of New Orleans plays. They played in a couple of other arenas. It was not successful. Um, And of course, that is not necessarily because of New Orleans. A lot of the ABA teams (laughs) ended up not being successful and moved around quite a bit. The ABA will only stay there for a couple of years. It will ultimately move to Memphis um, uh, and then move again and then die, like so many of the other ABA franchises. The only place that the ABA really does well um, in the South was in Kentucky. Uh, where the Kentucky Colonels were an almost nightly sellout. That's just because of the particular situation of Kentucky. What's interesting is that New Orleans is, of all the southern cities, the most racially cosmopolitan. And though it does have its long racialized history, the notion of black players in New Orleans is going to be not as big a deal as it's going to be elsewhere because New Orleans has always been an integrated city. New Orleans was not only the home of um, initial train car segregation, but it was also the home of the the black middle class that ended up suing and giving us Plessy versus Ferguson. So there has always been that population. And 
race didn't really turn out to be the big problem. Instead, it was inconsistent scheduling, no arena, um, no real national attention to the ABA until after its first couple of years. I mean, I think I think we can generally say that the ABA was saved by Dr. J, um, and he's still a kid at this point, and so he's still in high school, and so that's that's not going to to happen for them, and it just doesn't work. Well, let's let's move to the Hawks though, um, Atlanta. Um, uh, is also seen as a, I guess, as, as a, shall we say, budding cosmopolitan uh, mecca of its own. Um, give me a sense of, of how similar or dissimilar Atlanta was in the, let's call it professional basketball broadly. Obviously, the ABA was not there, but but certainly the Hawks did look at Atlanta anew again after having sort of flirted with with selling the franchise uh, in the first place. What is it about Atlanta? In many respects, it seems that, you know, obviously today it's sort of the gateway, if you will, to the South. Um, to me, in my in, in retrospect, you look at Atlanta as, you know, you kind of hit Atlanta and you, you're successful there. The, the South is frankly your oyster at the, after that point. Right. Absolutely. And that's exactly what Atlanta wanted you to think. You know, Atlanta has an interesting history. You know, before the Antebell, before the Civil War, you know, Atlanta was second uh, to Macon in Georgia. And they had risen after the Civil War to become this budding metropolis. The di- big difference between Atlanta and New Orleans was A, there was no integrationist tendency like there was in New Orleans and Atlanta. And B, Atlanta was way bigger and had a lot more money. And so Atlanta had, you know, that's why they go out. That's why they get the the Falcons, uh, because they don't want to be left behind. The only two real major deep south cities are New Orleans and Atlanta. They wanted to get those things and they wanted all of the sports. And that included basketball. Atlanta has an incredibly large and incredibly influential black population, far more segregated than it is in New Orleans, but it had always been there. Um, Auburn Avenue and the black middle class of Atlanta kind of made that city, and it had um, a long history of black journalism that had covered um, the Harlem Rens, uh, the Harlem Renaissance Five, the the major kind of Negro Leagues basketball team, and then later the Globetrotters. They cared about basketball. And there were a lot of white boosters in the town who were fans of the UGA basketball team, which was very popular. And they needed that too. They felt like that was it. Meanwhile, Ben Kerner back in St. Louis was desperate to sell. He did not want to be involved in basketball anymore. And if New Orleans fell through, he was going to keep looking. Atlanta very much wanted that team and they went out and courted it. Have to remember that even though Kerner was trying to sell and he was losing money in St. Louis and there weren't a lot of people coming to the games, St. Louis was really good. We always think about um, uh, the the Celtics and the Lakers as being the great East-West rivalry in the NBA. Before there was a – when the Lakers were still in Minneapolis, the team to beat in the West was the Hawks. 
And for years in the 1950s, almost every NBA Finals was the Celtics and the Hawks. And of course, the Celtics always win because they have Bill Russell, um, except for once uh, when, when St. Louis Hawks do win the Hawks only championship. Actually, interestingly enough, I think fitting for our discussion here, the last all white champion in the NBA um, was the St. Louis Hawks. The last time an all-white team won an NBA championship, that too is going to make it the kind of place that um, – the kind of team that Atlanta is going to want. At the point where they are arguing for it, their star player is Bob Pettit, who was an SEC guy from LSU, um, uh, a white player, a white star. This is what they wanted. And so they shell out – way more money than the Hawks are worth to bring them to Atlanta. And again, they don't have an arena yet. So to convince the NBA, because the NBA requires you to have a professional arena that's only for them. You can also have hockey, of course, because the NBA was created by hockey owners. So, you know, basketball originally professionally was started as a, as a gimmick for hockey owners to make more money off their arenas. So Hockey was okay, but everything else had to be specifically for pro basketball. So Atlanta promised to build this fancy arena, which they end up building called the Omni, the original uh, pro basketball place uh, in Atlanta. But until then, the Atlanta Hawks come to to Georgia. They don't have any place to play. Um, They end up playing at Georgia Tech's Memorial Coliseum, which is uh, just wood over a concrete slab. So, of course, it's going to create all kinds of injuries for the players. They hate it. Uh, Nobody comes to the games early on because they don't have their own arena. Um, Most of the players are black. All of them report experiencing all kinds of virulent, ugly racism, not necessarily in their stadium, but living in Atlanta. And it is an experiment that doesn't start off well, I guess we can say. Right, what's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. And that's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Holy mackerel. I added that part. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. So 
describe some of that. Uh, I, I, and frankly, also, too, I guess that from the fan base, too, because I, I think some of it had to sort of creep into actually uh, attending the games, too, because in essence, you know, you're, you're attracting uh, 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 interest from, if you will, uh, both sides of the racial spectrum. And, and, and I want to call it experiment, but it certainly um, I, it seems like it, it would take a strong general management uh, to take on this challenge, given the state of things in the late 60s, early 70s for both of these franchises. It would. And yet they didn't have it. <laughs> um, so they would go out before the Hawks actually got here. They would go out. Uh, the boosters in Atlanta would go out and try to sell pro basketball in the surrounding areas. They tried to make this Georgia's team and they would go out to all these um, Kiwanis clubs and uh, other kind of organizations to try to drum up interests in professional basketball coming to Atlanta, this great civic get for Georgia. And in every place they stopped, the first question was, do you have any white guys on the team? And they knew right away that race was going to end up being the number one thing that they had to deal with. Though Bob Pettit was the big star, the actual best player of the St. Louis Hawks was a guy named Lenny Wilkins, uh, who would later on become the great Lenny Wilkins, the coach and everything else. And Lenny Wilkins refused to go with the team to Atlanta because he knew what it was like in the South. And he wasn't going to go play in the South. Before the NBA actually came down to Atlanta, they would do their spring training in the South. They would run these kind of barnstorming circuits through southern cities uh, like the Globetrotters do today uh, to practice before they played their games. And there are horror stories, um, especially uh, uh, from Bill Russell and Elgin Baylor, two of the most vocal civil rights advocates in the league and two of the guys who were very much willing to call people out when they were racist to them uh, about problems with restaurants, problems with sleeping accommodations. Every time they would go south, all the ugly names from people in the crowd, people waving the Confederate flag at the games. And there were a lot of black players who did not want to go. And so the, the whole ordeal starts off problematically because the actual best player on the Hawks refuses to go and forces a trade because he is not going to play in Atlanta. So that works out pretty badly. Another irony of that, of course, is that Lenny Wilkins' most important coaching stint was with the Hawks um, when he coached Dominique. And so they finally get there. The team is about half black, but for the starters, they're all black. And so it is a decidedly black team. Pogo Joe Caldwell was probably the most outspoken of those people. He gets there, and as soon as he gets there, when he gets off the bus and his uh, wife is meeting them there, uh, a red pickup truck drives up with a Confederate flag hanging out of it saying, welcome to Atlanta, N-word. And that's how he – that was his first time to ever be in Atlanta. And it just kind of colored everything from there. The ownership and the management, not the coaches, the coaches very much are not thinking like this, but the management start to think, well, if the only thing people are interested in is the white players and they are hostile to the blackness of the game of basketball, 
then what we need to do is to start recruiting white players to come play in Atlanta. Now, keep in mind, the Hawks had been in the NBA Finals the year before they moved to Atlanta. And this is a great team. And yet, their thinking is, it will be better for us financially to erode the quality of the team in favor of getting white players, especially white players from SEC teams, because that's what people want to see. That's what they see when they go to University of Georgia basketball games. And so over the course of the first couple of years of the Hawks' existence in Atlanta, management starts dismantling this team that had been in six NBA finals over the last decade getting rid of all of its good black players and replacing them with these mid-card SEC white guys so that people will come to the games. And because white fans don't care if they win, they want to make sure they're white. And sadly, that actually boosts attendance. As the record goes down, attendance goes up because more and more white people are playing. And of course, this the, the apotheosis of all of this will be a couple of years, three years after the Hawks um, arrive in Atlanta when they they draft uh, the ultimate great white hope, Pete Maravich. All right. Well, so let's let's put Pistol Pete sort of in in context now, because you, you you've mentioned sort of the great white hope sort of generally. And now I think even more to a to a player more specifically, um, I, I guess I'm really interested in hearing why somebody of this caliber, obviously Hall of Famer, and it just 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 still mesmerizing to this day. You look at all the clips on YouTube and stuff. I mean, it's just just amazing, one of a kind talent. Um, why was it so important to have this um, again at the time? I guess budding, but obvious uh, yet white superstar into this mixture. Why was that such a, such an important element? to uh, for for this franchise because I, I would imagine that at this time and I'm not you know I'm not a um, I'm not a, a, a cultural historian by any means but I, I have to think that Atlanta around this time I mean there was uh, a growing and very uh, uh, influential black middle class at this point uh, that would uh, certainly be adding to the value of the of this franchise in terms of their interest in, in the sport and supporting it in addition to uh, whatever uh, non-white elements were out there. You're absolutely right. There is a a, a thriving black middle class in Atlanta. The problem is, is that they were not being advertised to in the same way that white audiences were, because if you start getting a large black fan base coming to the games, it doesn't matter what the players look like. White folks aren't going to come. So it's almost like there's a continuation of that sort of segregationalist kind of approach from a marketing perspective. It's almost like this is still this is a team, although the league is predominantly African-American in, in, in its play, we're, this, this team is going to be still marketed as not that. Absolutely. It's got to be. I mean, hell, this this hasn't ended. I mean, just a few years ago, you're probably familiar. Danny Ferry got fired as our general manager in Atlanta 
I say our. I'm in Georgia. I'm a, a Hawks fan. Ah, uh, so um, you just gave yourself away. Okay. Sorry. I, I'm just, you know, Danny Ferry got fired three We're years ago fans, because yeah. he was complaining that there were too many black fans at the games, and we're not going to draw white fans uh, if we keep ha- if we keep catering to black audiences and having rappers on the sideline and everything else. He ends up getting fired, but that is the dom- that was the dominant attitude in the front office in Atlanta is that now that Atlanta is a majority black city, black folks are coming to the Atlanta Hawks games. And so white people aren't coming anymore. White people spend more money. We need to figure out a way to get more white people to our games. And that's in what, 2016? I mean, I mean, so, I mean, this is not like something that has ever really gone away, but yes, it was, um, you didn't have to hide it as much uh, in the early days as you do now, but certainly that was part of it. And so every once in a while, you do see advertisements in the major black newspaper in Atlanta, the Atlanta Daily World, for um, Hawks games, um, but they were relatively rare, whereas you saw them every day in the Atlanta Constitution, uh, the main white paper in the city. So um, they were clearly playing to a very certain kind of crowd. And that crowd is the same crowd that spent their Saturdays in the fall at SEC football games, that followed the SEC, that cared about the SEC more than anything else in the way that we still do today. The SEC is still um, the most important entity in the South. Um, It has been since the Confederacy fell. I mean, the SEC is everything down here. And so what we want is white SEC players because A, they're white, but B, the only kind of basketball that people have really had contact with in the South is college basketball. And so the best thing for us to do is to get recognizable faces for them. That they're white helps us, but what we really want is recognizability. We want SEC people. LSU, P. Maravich is an interesting story because while he was – the most amazing college basketball player ever uh, by any account. We don't have very much footage of him at all from college, almost none, because while he was amazing, LSU sucked. I mean, they were never good. They were never featured. They were never on television because he was the best guy on a relatively bad team. And so that hurts him and helps him. Um, it hurts him because the scouts don't have the same kind of tape on him that they have on everybody else. It helps him in that it grows this myth because all you hear about Pete Maravich is the stories that people tell about him and what he does. And nobody's ever seen anything like it before. And, and so he's got this popular um, kind of appeal to everybody this amazing white basketball player in the South from the SEC. Meanwhile, scouts and the people who actually make it their business to know which players to draft are actually not incredibly high on Pete Maravich because they just don't know enough. Meanwhile, there are all these other great players from more established programs that they do know a lot more about. And so it would be better they argue, if we draft those guys instead of this unknown quantity, because to them, it seems like the only reason that people care about Pete Maravich is because he's a white guy from the South and he has floppy hair and he, he looks very mod in the sense of in the, in the style of the times. 
So there really is a disconnect between Maravich's popularity coming out of college and his draft stock among those who make it their business to know. Yeah, and and so it's just interesting though that uh, so when he came up when he he graduated from LSU and 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 was drafted by the Hawks, um, right? Where I mean, I, again, were they were were the Hawks assuming that this he was going to sort of ascend into superstardom or because he it, it took him a little while to sort of get adjusted. I mean, he really didn't start to hit all cylinders until a couple of years into his his tenure, there. and like you said, I mean, the Hawks, you know, had a had a flash of. Of greatness, but they were certainly not a uh, playoff caliber at that time, even with him. Right. So, right. So they had been the, the champions in St. Louis. They had eroded that team specifically to put white SEC guys on there. The owner of the Hawks was a guy named Tom Cousins, a, a Georgia politician uh, who owned the team, was a big booster for Atlanta. He had seen Maravich play when they came uh, to UGA. And it was from that moment uh, when he said, I'm, I'm getting him on my team. And he forced um, management to take Maravich at three. Um, they had the third pick. Um, he, the, 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 the brass did not want him. Um, so they just kind of were forced to, to take him. But because we are in uh, the era of uh, the ABA, there is this this assumption that um, he doesn't have to come here. And, you know, he's also very much drafted uh, in the ABA. He can go there and maybe his style of play is more – you know, more ABA. I mean, he's, he's kind of Dr. J before Dr. J. And so uh, maybe he would go there. And so to lure him there, uh, the Hawks not only draft him third, I should say that he was drafted third overall um, uh, uh, in front of behind two other hall of famers, uh, Bob Lanier goes first in that draft. And then Rudy Tomjanovich uh, goes next so he's he's behind uh, legitimately great players at three. So um, they end up giving him everything. They give him a million-dollar contract. They give him his own driver. They give him cars. They give him a secretary. They give him all of these concessions that nobody else would give him. Um, not only that, but they at least flirted with giving his father – uh, Press Maravich, who was the coach at LSU, the head coaching job, just to make sure he'd come there. Now, they end up not doing that. Um, I think Pete wanted to get away uh, from his dad. for He'd been his coach by his dad his whole life. So they ended up not doing that. But they were very willing to do that as well. And so they mortgage the entire team's future. <laughs> they sell everything to get him, which is going to do two things. One, it's going to ensure that no matter what he does – um, he's not going to have good players around him no matter what. So this is going to be another LSU situation where they can't afford good players because they've spent everything on him. Second, it's going to alienate him from all the other players on the team who are more established, who have proven themselves, who there is actually tape on, and who get 
just nothing compared to what he gets. And he makes four times what the next guy on his team gets. I mean, it's insane. And when you add the fact that those good players are black and that he is an unproven white guy who is really only being drafted because of he because of his status as a white star from the SEC, it is going to create real problems for Pete early on. His team, his teammates aren't going to like him very much because he's going to seem aloof and he's going to seem whatever else because he's got all the money and because he's getting all the things that they should, they believe they should get. And it's also going to put unfair expectations on him because when you've been playing on a losing team for the last three years at LSU with no TV cameras and anything else, you can be great. And if you mess up, nobody's going to really know. They're only going to talk about the good stuff. Now you're in the NBA when everybody is paying attention and they've put this kind of expectation on him that even if he was great right out of the gate, there's no way he ever could have matched those expectations. This is in an age when we're not giving people seven figure deals and he gets one as this unproven nobody that wasn't even on the top five of anybody's draft board except for Atlanta. And when you combine that with what everybody has seen them doing for the last three years of trading away black players, getting white SEC guys, it's only, I mean, so as another example, in the eighth round, they draft, uh, another white guy from LSU, Pete Maravich's roommate, uh, at LSU, who he travels with on the road, who is not good enough for the bench of the ABA. I mean, he's just a, a bench player at LSU. They draft him in the eighth round, give him a contract, get him on the team, and let him be Maravich's roommate on the road so he doesn't have to room with any of the other players. I mean, that's the level of sellout they go for Maravich. And it wasn't fair to the Hawks fans, first of all, because it's going to ensure their team sucks for a long time, but it's really not fair. And it's not fair to the other players, certainly. I mean, the, the racial tensions that develop because of that Maravich contract are real. And to be fair, legitimate, Pogo Joe Caldwell argued in his book, though it's not verified by any other source, he argued in his book that um, he complained to, to the ownership about Maravich's contract. And he demanded um, a $5,000 raise, a minuscule amount of money in the scheme of things. And that the ownership said, we're not giving an N-word anything. Everything goes to Pete. And the racial tensions on the team are real. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to the fans. And especially it's not fair to Pete because it created, I think, a lot of – I think it was the beginning of a lot of the problems that he's going to have later in his life. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, right? Because I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's, it's interesting in that uh, it just seems like it's so much to give up to, uh, if you will, mortgage the franchise or or, or tilt the franchise so much towards this – as you said it before, great white hope. I mean, there's no doubt. It's a, it, it seems like uh, the crowds were still intrigued with what was on the court because he was a draw for sure. I mean, just him alone. I mean, I, sadly, you can't you can't just have one guy against five, right? But um, it just seems like a large price to pay when I mean, maybe aside from one season or two when he was the one season when he was with the Hawks, they actually qualified for the playoffs. 
you know, I, and and it, it followed him to the Jazz. We'll to get to that in a second. Um, you know, this is, you know, for all his greatness, and, and don't get me wrong, this this is one of the greatest players easily in the in the top fifty or top seventy five, whatever the list this year is in the NBA of all time. Uh, I wouldn't call him necessarily the greatest cog in uh, team building and team mechanics of of winning franchises. Right. Absolutely. He wasn't. And part of that was his fault, but most of it wasn't. I mean, he was really set up for failure. I mean, so Bob Lanier goes first in that draft. We're not yet on the the pay scale like we are now in the NBA where where you just get paid where you're slotted and everybody has a contract. I mean, Pete Maravich gets paid three times. He gets three times the contract of what Lanier gets at one. And he's the third pick. So, I mean – it is, and I think it's important to note that, of course, Bob Lanier uh, not only is a great player and also one of those top 50 players, but he's black. So, I mean, there's going to be just resentment everywhere. There's no way you can lead a team if they all resent you. And with the racial situation that had existed in the NBA and that was currently existing in the Atlanta franchise and in the Atlanta city, there was just no way Pete was going to be able to succeed there in any kind of sustained way. Now, he was very much able to showcase his brilliance. I mean, uh, that is absolutely true. He is able to do things that nobody else can do. And when that shows itself, it is amazing and it is great and people love to see it. But there's only so much you can ask of a fan base when they're coming to see a losing team every night. And there's only so much you can ask of Pete when you're coddling him in this way and giving him this kind of treatment and really separating him from his teammates to the point where they can't even really be teammates. And whenever anything goes wrong with the Hawks, nobody is going to blame the coach. Nobody is going to blame the owners. Nobody is good. Everybody is going to blame Pete because he gets more money than anybody else. And it just becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that ends up leading to, to his doom and kind of drives the Hawks down this road that of futility, um, which really won't get fixed uh, until they get another SEC star a uh, decade later in Dominique. So, you know, it's, it is a problem for Pete. It is a problem for the Hawks. It is a problem for what it says about racial assumptions in pro basketball in the early 1970s. All right. Well, let's let's talk about sort of his 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 next move and and the broader implications of uh, uh, the city we mentioned earlier, New Orleans, now uh, getting uh, finally uh, uh, ready to. Uh, get a a franchise of its own, and this time an expansion franchise in 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 1974. And um, uh, it, 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 maybe this it, this feels to me like it's almost sort of yet another uh, chapter, sort of in this great white hope thing. In this case, you know, I, I think the word that you haven't mentioned or used, maybe you did use it, and I just missed it, uh, and I'll just project it onto here, and you tell me why it's right or wrong, is identity. Um, and it feels to me, it's like, it's almost like at least the Hawks franchise at the time, uh, it's almost like they were trying to, if you will, allow the fans to identify more easily to the product on the court via this great 100%. white superstar. Okay. So it seems to me like that sort of, uh, 
ill-logic, Ill if that's the right word, ill-fated logic, erroneous logic, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say, uh, is being repeated again with the foundation of this jazz franchise. Maybe the only thing, though, I could maybe see justified is the fact that he's essentially a home product, i.e. LSU, although he's, you know, he's he's been all over the place, right, born in Pennsylvania, et cetera. But uh, it's almost like uh, uh, the ultimate in identity. It's here's a local hero, if you will. Um, but is also this white local hero that you can identify with fans. And what better way to kickstart a new franchise than by bringing this guy into it and being the star attraction? Absolutely. If Southern teams are looking for white guys from the SEC, you can't do any better than a home guy like that. And the Jazz... So first of all, the Jazz were owned by a minority group that was outside of the state. They were owned by a group from California. And, and so they were trying to figure out how best to inculcate themselves into the region. Meanwhile, the city had learned from the Buccaneers that you've got to create some kind of draw for people to make them want to come Um and LSU was always the draw in Louisiana. Baton Rouge is about an hour down the road. Um, and just like Athens is about an hour down the road from, from Atlanta. And so the idea was Pete would fit perfectly here. The, now, remember that the Buccaneers didn't have the same kind of racial troubles that, the, that Atlanta did, that the Hawks did. But the Jazz are going to kind of build on a Hawks model rather than on a Buccaneers model. They get this team and they take all the mistakes that the Hawks make and kind of kick them up to 11. So they have a new arena coming soon. They, they too have to play their first year in a variety of uh, local gyms, but eventually uh, they are going to move into the Superdome. And the reason why, um, people were arguing to get a pro basketball team was specifically because the Superdome needed more dates. The Superdome ended up becoming the most expensive project in the history of the state. Uh, millions of dollars over budget. Um, nobody knew how they were going to be able to afford it. The, it was argued that um, with only eight dates for a pro football season, that if the Superdome didn't get at least 200 more per year, that the Superdome would collapse after one year only. I mean, that was how bad Louisiana was in debt on the Superdome. And so we need at least pro basketball to put in the dome. So they get a team to put in the dome uh, and their desperation. And because it was desperation built around an arena, they start before they even get Pete Maravich destroying their future because of their deal with the Superdome. I mean, just to get into the Superdome, the Jazz promised the Dome Commission, the, the commission that ran the Superdome, they promised them to pay them $2,000 a game just for the right to be there or 8% of gross ticket sales, whichever was more. And after that, it would be 10% of gross ticket sales. They agreed that they would get no income, that all the income from concessions, from parking, from stadium advertising, from all that kind of stuff would go to the Superdome, not to the Jazz. Um, I mean, there was no way 
that they were going to make money playing basketball in New Orleans with that kind of deal. They also agreed to be the ones to hire all the ticket takers and the security and the ushers and the, the janitors. That was all on the jazz expense books, too. So even before they get any players, the franchise is doomed. It is done before they even start because they give this crazy Pete Maravich deal to the Superdome. Then to try to get people in the seats because the only way they're making money is off tickets now because of all of this other stuff, they've got to go out and get somebody who will sell them. And so they end up mortgaging everything else to get Maravich. And so whereas they pay a, a Hawks and Maravich kind of money deal to the Superdome to try to get a place to play, they give Atlanta all of their basketball capital. I mean, they give up like two first rounders, two second rounders, a third, uh, three third rounders, options to make those second rounders first rounders if they end up doing worse. I mean, they completely mortgage their future to get Pete Maravich to the point where, again, just like in Atlanta, there was no way that Pete Maravich was going to have any good players around him because they had given away all their draft picks. They had given away everything to Atlanta. And while all they're essentially doing is picking up Pete's contract, and they're not having to, 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 to do more with that, as we've already seen, his contract was so insane that they're also going to have to pay all that money along with giving up every single possibility they could ever have for success in the Dome. And sure enough, just like in Atlanta, having Pete was interesting for a time. People like seeing him, but nobody's going to keep going if all you do is lose. And all the Jazz did was lose. But man, did they lose in style, right? Uh, you know, the... It was uh, fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I remember... You know, a lot of those sort of uh, not so much the Atlanta uh, years, but certainly the New Orleans years, the very rare times that I living in the the Northeast might see a regional uh, NBA game featuring Mary Richard. Maybe it was a local game like the Knicks going down or the Nets uh, going down to New Orleans. Uh, and, well, it's more the Knicks, right, because it was the, the Nets were still in the ABA at the time. But um yeah, it was is quite a re revelation. I mean, you didn't you didn't sort of forget it was always it was always really a matter of not like how you know how the Jazz would play, but how many points would Pete score? And and I you know if you're if you're starting a franchise, I guess you need every gimmick to get going, right? But the the reality is that I hate to call him a sideshow, but I think that's that's the main attraction. And and if that's you know, if he's having an off night or his knees are not performing as they clearly started not to on a more regular basis as the years went on, um, that makes for a difficult competitive situation for for a team playing against, you know, night after night against, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the slogging that, that's uh, part of the NBA travel ex uh, experience. Exactly. I mean, it really was a problem. And what's interesting is, is that arenas around the country where the Jazz played Attendance went up several thousand uh, on the nights the Jazz were there, not just because they assumed that their team would win, but because this was their chance to see Pete play live. And everybody wanted to see that. The Jazz, even though they were um, a bottom feeder team, were featured on national television uh, more than any other team except for the Knicks, 
the the Celtics and the Lakers because they had Pete. And even though executives at the television networks knew they were going to lose because people wanted to see Pete. And so he is doing what he's brought there to do, I suppose. The problem is, is that New Orleans itself and the jazz franchise don't reap any of those benefits, either in revenue, which they lose every single year they're in New Orleans, or in victories and actual team success. And the whole point of getting these professional franchises to come to the South was to prove that, hey, we're not backwards anymore. I mean, we're part of the Sun Belt. We're we're this new thriving cities. It wasn't just getting those teams. That was step one. But you also want to have winning teams. I mean, you want to be able to compete. You want something to brag about. Having a team that is a bottom feeder team doesn't really do the kind of work that you're hoping those teams will do. And so in every other way, the Pete experiment fails in both of those cities. And what's interesting is that for Pete, it was the norm, the normal thing. He was essentially the sideshow at LSU, the best player on a bad team. The same thing happened in Atlanta, then the same thing happened in New Orleans. And then before New Orleans moves, he ends up retiring. So um, that was all he ever knew. Um, One of the greatest players who ever played, but never really got a chance to play in a good team. Partly that was his fault. Certainly, but also it was because he played for two teams that were experiments in the South in a period of racial turmoil that were simply not ready for the rigors of what a pro basketball team was supposed to be. And why? So, okay, so I guess the loaded question then is why the Jazz lasted so shortly, such a short period of time before going to the oddly greener pastures nobody would have predicted back in in when they moved in 77 78 uh, to salt lake city uh so maybe putting it in large perspective or in small perspective i mean was it pete maravich was it the uh, the franchise essentially giving giving away the store to get him was it the was it the the new orleans superdome and or the louisiana superdome and, and its inability to be uh, packed uh, in any great shape or form. Was it the the, the dimensions of the fan base? Why do you think uh, the Jazz lasted for such a short period of time before getting out of Dodge? So there are a few reasons for that. The first, you're right, the Superdome is a terrible place to play basketball. Um, it's still a terrible place. Even when they bring the NCAA tournament there, it's, it's, it's a terrible place to play basketball. But even more so because even though the, the Jazz never were at the bottom of the attendance list, they averaged about 5,000 people a game. The problem is when you're in a cavernous stadium, 5,000 people does not look like very many people. And so it it looked worse than it really was. They never had a profit um, in New Orleans. Both of those things were big problems. They never won. That was a big problem. Meanwhile, the owner of the, the team, the guy who ended up founding it to begin with, the guy named Sam Battistone from California, was a, a devout Mormon. Um, and... Salt Lake City had one of, often forgotten, one of the last great successful ABA teams, the Utah Stars, um, who, even when they weren't winning, always drew crowds. They did incredibly well. 
As a matter of fact, the Utah Stars actually play a role in the whole Pete saga at the beginning, too, because their star player when Pete moves from Atlanta was a guy named Jimmy Jones who had gone to college in Louisiana, who was a New Orleans native, and who was actively lobbying to come play point guard for the Jazz. He was an all-star in the ABA. He was great, but he wasn't a great white hope. He was, you know, uh, uh, a black guy from the wrong side of the tracks in New Orleans who had ended up doing well, but he had gone to an HBCU. He didn't have the kind of name recognition or the recognition that white fans would know. And so they pass on him. They get Pete instead and mortgage their entire future for him. It doesn't work. By the time a few years pass, Jones has retired. The ABA has merged and Utah did not become part of it. So Salt Lake feels like even though we're a small market, New Orleans is the smallest city in the NBA. It's still the smallest city in the NBA. It's still the smallest city in the NFL, uh, save maybe uh, Green Bay if we don't count Milwaukee. And so it's a small place. I mean, there's only a few hundred thousand people in New Orleans. So if they can do it, we can do it. We've already proven that we've had success in the ABA with the Stars. We, they, even the years they didn't win, they won the attendance uh, thing every single year that the Utah Stars were there. And of course, you have a Mormon owner who says, well, I'm not making any money. I'm living with money hand over fist. I know for a fact that, that Salt Lake City wants a team and will cater to me. And that's where the Mormons are. And so he decides to move. Yeah, and keeping the jazz name, which is the ultimate uh, uh, curiosity in in our exploration, uh, it's to this day it defies logic that the jazz name uh, not only was kept but is stuck for all these decades since. It's crazy, and you know the jazz, the name itself. They didn't have a name for the NBA franchise in New Orleans. They they decided on jazz from a fan vote. They they did a thing through the New Orleans Times Picayune where they would just have people. Um, uh, write in names and jazz won a contest. That's how they ended up picking that name. It wasn't even any kind of strategic marketing thing. It was just a contest name that won. Why Badison decided to keep the jazz name has baffled all of us all of these years. I mean, it makes no sense, but, um, that's right up there with the Lakers of Los Angeles. That's right. Exactly. How many, how many lakes that I'm familiar with in LA in the basin in particular. Exactly. That's true. But again, of course, we could also say that uh, no one in Manhattan uh, wears Knickerbockers anymore, but we still call the Knicks the Knicks. So Dodgers, it goes on. But the jazz is probably the weirdest one of them all, to be sure. I mean, it, it is. crazy. And these kids today, they don't know. They don't know from jazz. They don't, they don't even understand the history of it. Right. Which is. But this is to me, it's fascinating. And, and it's it's amazing what people will accept without questioning it. Uh, just, oh, sure. Utah jazz. And I'm, by the way, I'm sure there are quite a few great jazz places in in Salt Lake and environs. So please, no no emails uh, telling me how great right, the jazz is. You're never going to hear me say anything bad about Salt Lake City. That's where they film Fletch. I mean, come on. I mean, I, I will always be a fan of Salt Lake, even though I've never actually been there. But I will say that the move to Salt Lake just devastated Pete. I mean, you know, it's bad enough kind of being the great white hope in Atlanta, being that in the place where you're from, or at least where you're associated with most, was just just destroyed him that he couldn't succeed there, uh, partly because he didn't have a team around him, partly because 
in the few years he was there, each year became worse and worse for his knees and for various leg issues that he had. And when the team decided to move, I mean, I think part of Battistone's idea was that Pete would sell well in Salt Lake. I mean, again, another city that is dominated by white people and where you want to, where they want to have kind of a white face. And he thought Pete could be that there, but Pete retires rather than go to Salt Lake, um, just completely defeated um, as somebody who just failed his city, um, even though he didn't. Um, that was certainly his thinking. By that point, he had already kind of, I, I don't want to say he was into full on alcoholism, but he was certainly on on the road to that. Uh, at that point, the pressure of being um, the guy in these two places where he never succeeded, and it ended up just killing whatever career he might have had left. That move to uh, that move to Utah. Okay, so give me let's let's round the corner here then. So give give me a sense then of what you think, uh, sort of the 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 legacy of professional basketball in the South was given that sort of torturous and and curious. Uh, set of histories amongst those franchises in, 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 the, in particular those two markets because it was still quite a bit of time after that period of time after the the jazz uh, moved to uh, Salt Lake City that uh, the NBA more fully embraced other southern uh, cities beyond Atlanta I mean uh, Ted Turner obviously coming into the mix in Atlanta and 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 giving more resources and 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 marketing muscle, shall we say, to that team amongst his other holdings. But then the introduction of Charlotte, the discovery, if you will, of Florida uh, for two franchises and that kind of stuff. It's, and then the rebirth, if you will, of, of New Orleans, even though they can't seem to keep a name. I guess it's Pelican <laughs> now. Well, and even Charlotte, frankly, had its, had its hiccups as fran- as a franchise, right? Um, I don't know if that's necessarily thematic to to your argument here, but, but give me a sense. I mean, it still took, it, it was not a fait accompli still that Beyond Atlanta, with a major owner with with major national marketing muscle and a media mogul at that, that that the South and basketball, the NBA, was still going to be a marriage made in heaven. Arguably, what it is more so today. Right, and you know, I think uh, the two things that really alert the NBA to the possibility that the South could still be a viable market was a, that the Hawks didn't leave. Um, and they ended up being financially stable, even though they weren't always very good. But the most important thing that happened that ended up opening up the South to the NBA was Dominique Wilkins. Um, when he comes out uh, of UGA goes to the Hawks, all of a sudden, Southern basketball becomes an obsession for a lot of people. By the 1980s, while racial inequality was and still is a real problem in the South, um, there was more black capital that existed there. There was more interest in the NBA. There was more interest. By that point, we already had the Showtime Lakers. We had already, uh, by 1984, when Dominique comes into the league, we had already moved the NBA Finals off tape delay and made them live. He was Dominique Wilkins was a real star 
all of a sudden, not only were the Hawks good, but they were selling out the arena. And it gave David Stern, who had become, who had always been the, the chief legal counsel for the NBA during those first efforts, who was now the commissioner of the NBA, it gave him the incentive to start thinking um, like, for example, Pete Davidson, like, like somebody who would would kind of see new markets as real possibilities. And so he turned back to the Sun Belt for expansion, um, realizing that the South really could be successful in the right situation. Now that at least the, the worst part of the racial struggles had kind of given way. And it's interesting. I mean, even before we get Charlotte and then we get Orlando and the Heat, even before that, the Timberwolves in Minnesota um, in the late 1980s uh, were right about five years after Dominique comes into the league, were having real financial difficulties in Minneapolis and were also thinking about leaving. And it was, again, it was almost a completely done deal that they were coming to New Orleans, that they were coming to, New, that they were going to, ha- and they, they ended up having so much so that they even ran the similar naming contest in New Orleans to replace the jazz uh, like they did. And so they had a naming contest because everybody in Louisiana was very sure they were going to get the Timberwolves um, because it was time that we had Dominique. Southern basketball was good. Everybody cared every time the Celtics and the Hawks played was a huge deal again because of Bird versus Dominique, just like it had been in the 50s. And so all of a sudden it was OK again. The Timberwolves are ready to come down. They have a naming contest. Interestingly enough, way better name that time. The winning name uh, for the for the Timberwolves was Sinners so that New Orleans would have the Saints and the Sinners uh, as their two professional teams. Um, and that's what, that's the next team that would have been the next Southern NBA team. It turns out not to happen. The Sinners never exist because um, new financing steps in in Minneapolis to try to convince the team not to leave. Um, and so they end up not coming. But that willingness of the team to go uh, New Orleans's promise of a non-football arena for them and the seeming acceptance of everybody in New Orleans. They had tens of thousands of people vote on new names for the team. It showed David Stern that with the combination of the success of Atlanta with Dominique and the seeming interest in New Orleans, that there really was an opportunity in the South now that we were a generation off of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And he didn't decide to come back to New Orleans. There was still a kind of a a rough legacy there. Um, And New Orleans really is a super small place, even though we don't think of it as such. It really is too small to hold a lot of professional sports. Instead, he decides to go where basketball has always been popular. Um, He thought about Kentucky, thinking about the Colonels and their successful run in the ABA, ended up winning the bid with Charlotte, uh, again, from the other kind of major basketball southern place. And that opens the floodgates and hasn't really looked back. 
Yeah, and look, I think you can also, uh, uh, you know, circling around your, your your broader theme. I mean, you can. I was just sort of marveling at this a, a couple of days ago, watching some NBA uh, uh, telecasts over Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Um, it feels to me like the the NBA is is by far uh, the most um, uh, progressive, uh, inclusive, uh, uh, understanding of of the the black experience. Uh, 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 aligning with uh, 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 the, the realities of, of uh, the majority of their uh, their playing base, um, uh, willing to uh, embrace uh, cultural differences. I mean, it just seems like uh, the the relationship between the league and its players, uh, with those broader uh, uh, issues in mind, just seems like has come such a long way from. From the times that we're talking about to the point where, you know, it's hard it's still many, many, many things left to go. But arguably, I think it's become almost a hallmark of how professional leagues uh, can and should uh, embrace uh, their players and and what they they stand for and, and the 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 messages that they want to, to bring and represent, frankly, in order for um you know, for for all attending and all watching to kind of uh, better harmonize w- with the game that's being played, it, it seems almost anachronistic to to what we just described over those decades in the sixties and seventies. You're right. The NBA the NBA has felt its kind of uh, racial legacy more than any of the other leagues and does a better job of responding to its players. They stand up on a variety of issues, and the NBA, and especially the WNBA, are the two most progressive of uh, all of the professional sports leagues. At the same time, however, remember that we are in the process right now of cleaning out the Phoenix Suns organization because of all of their racial problems. Very very true. We are only a few years out of Donald Sterling. Yeah. We are only a few years out of Danny Ferry and my beloved Hawks cleaning house because all of their people are racist too. So um, while the the NBA players uh, are doing very well, uh, and Adam Silver has been great about facilitating those things, this is we have to remember that most of that action comes from the NBA's willingness to accommodate players, not from a top-down kind of thing. Remember, it was LeBron arguing that we're not going to play in the bubble unless you let us do Black Lives Matter. It was the players who were kind of channeling Bill Russell who are saying, listen, we want to be spokespeople. You can't find me for the I can't breathe shirt. And now, to the NBA's credit, they listen to those things and they have acted on them. But the upper administration of the NBA, with the exception of Michael Jordan in Charlotte, is overwhelmingly white and still has a lot of racial issues. The one benefit it has is, is and with the WNBA, is that its, its league leaders listen to the players. And so when we think about the progressiveness of the NBA, we are thinking less about um league initiatives and more about the league responding to player initiatives that are kind of rechanneling and reconnecting with the civil rights era players. Because remember, I mean, in between 
Bill Russell and his generation that actually played and then left the arena and went out and fought for civil rights. In between that and now, we had Jordan, you know, the, the greatest player ever, but one who refused to engage in politics and refused to get involved in any rights issues and refused to comment on Rodney King and refused to do all of those things, specifically because he wanted to make money for Nike and everything else. And so we've, we've gone a kind of in waves. And in each of those waves, the progressive nature of the NBA and now the WNBA has not been sparked by the league itself and by the owners or the governors because the owners and governors are, frankly, uh, uh, old white guys. Instead, yeah, capitalists. The, the, yeah, absolutely. What we end up seeing is that the player, the, the owner is now being willing to give in to player demands when it comes to social justice issues. And it makes the NBA the leader in all of that. But it is because of the players, not and maybe Adam Silver, but not because of the owners. Unfortunately, we still have tons of troubles uh, with racial issues in, in the part of management groups and no. very NBA teams. Yeah, point well taken. And, and I, I guess I, it almost, uh, in some respects, it almost, I hate to sort of throw the word in there, but it almost feels like appeasement in some respect. No. Uh, I think that's fair. But but then I also then think about, too, it's also leverage, right? And the players, it seems maybe the better way to sort of characterize it is that, that perhaps more so than any other league, it would seem, although we'll see how the baseball offseason, if you will, plays out and we have a season. <laughs> uh, yeah. The leverage is clearly with the players. Uh, and I wonder, you know, how much the owners kind of maybe, um, you know, how they might uh, – not necessarily recognize that uh, it, it's not just about appeasing, but it's about uh, equity and and to your point and the senior management levels and all those things, all those other wrongs that that still needed to, need to be righted. I guess the one last question I'll ask you then, just to close this uh, thread: um, Do you worry? Do you wonder um, about? Uh, and this is something for pro sports generally, not just the NBA, but included in. Is this? Um, uh, it's always been big money. It's getting bigger money. And that money now is coming from things like private equity and partial ownership and maybe multiple uh, minor uh, stake ownership from private equity entities, uh, perhaps in collusion with other sports. The corporatization, I guess, is the, the word I'm looking for. Do you worry that the structural finances, if you will, behind uh, pro sports generally, maybe the NBA specifically, you know, real estate and, and, and building experiences and NFTs and all all these other revenue streams. And stuff. Do you think that's going to have a material change effect either positively or negatively with this, let's call it progress, but still yet progress yet to go uh, on these issues? Or, I mean, I you know, I, I tend to be a glass half empty uh, on the, on those kinds of things. Cause I, you know, valuations, I just wonder if it all comes collapsing down or, or gets, uh, I don't know that the, this mutual, uh, admiration society may not necessarily cross that bridge into pure, uh, economics. Well, you know, that's always been the critique, right? I mean, people have argued that the NBA is very willing to give in to demands of I want to put something on the back of my jersey. But when it comes to eliminating the salary cap, they are going to they hold firm and are willing to lock out the players in the NBA for something like that. I mean, so. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a very cynical way to look at this to say, well, a lot of these. 
um, kind of more progressive issues that these leagues are willing to take up are largely cosmetic. And I think that's true. Um, and yes, I think it would be better if the NBA, if the players had more leverage in salary cap negotiations and getting rid of the rookie wage scale and things like that. But the the cosmetic things that they are willing to do still matter. And that is the public face of um, what everybody sees. And if we think of social justice as largely a PR campaign, then they're doing exactly what they should do. When it comes to private equity and other things like that, kind of dominating the sports landscape, I think what it's going to end up doing is creating a situation that looks very much like the immediate post-World War II boom, where we see the franchises moving all over the place. It doesn't end up ruining sports, even though there are a lot of people in Brooklyn who will tell you it did. It just ends up changing them to make them something fundamentally new. And if we're moving into that era, I don't think that's something that we need to actively resist. I think that as fans, we need to always just make sure that we pay attention to how our favorite teams and leagues are run and that in contests between the haves and the have-nots, that we as fans stay on the side of the have-nots, um, which in this case would be the players who are largely subject to those kind of things, whether it be NBA players um, a, a predominantly black group playing in front of 20,000 uh, upper middle class white people every night, or whether it be college football in the SEC, where 22 black players playing for free to entertain 90,000 white people screaming all around them. I, I think we need to make sure that even though they are the glorified stars and they are the ones who make all the money that we see, that we need to make sure that our fandom sides with those who need leverage in those kinds of negotiations. And as long as we do that, sports is going to change. Professional sports and all the leagues is going to change, but it's going to create something new. It's not going to end everything altogether. And as long as we have the games, um, I think we'll be okay. All right, always interesting conversations around these parts. And uh, I learned a little fact. Uh, I, I did not know this, and frankly, I had not seen that any anywhere else, that the Minnesota Timberwolves were flirting with the idea of moving to New Orleans back in the day uh, to possibly become the New Orleans Sinners, to become that uh, the, the, the counterweight, if you will, to the Saints and the NFL, the Saints and the Sinners. That would have been really interesting. Uh, I've not seen that anywhere else. Uh, please feel free to send information my way as to enlighten me further. Uh, but our thanks to Tom, not only for that little factoid, but also a, a great conversation. And, and the book that you must get to fill in all the gaps that I missed, because uh, we can only go so far for so long. It's called Dixie Ball. It came out uh, 2019 or last year. I'm not sure. I forgot. But recently it's called Dixie Ball Race and Professional Basketball in the Deep South, 1947. 1979 and is published by the University of Tennessee Press. Uh, and you can find it uh, wherever good books are found. 
Uh, of course, you can find a convenient link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. I believe it's number 244. Uh, and you will find a nice link to Amazon. Uh, you'll get it for the cheapest price and the quickest delivery. Uh, and you'll be giving us a couple of uh, of shekels of love by doing so, too, uh, in a referential way. We appreciate that. Um, you can follow Tom uh, and his exploits at uh, his website, thomasiellobooks.com, thomasiello, A-I-E-L-L-O, books.com. And you can also follow uh, Professor Tom at um, on uh, uh, Twitter at Thomas Aiello. Again, Aiello is A-I-E-L-L-O at Thomas Aiello. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. And of course, our website, again, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where every stinking episode that we've ever done and likely ever to produce will be found. Of course, the best way of, to keep in touch and get all of our latest episodes, whether they be new or reincarnated or from the vaults, is our feed, wherever you might find it in podcast land. We're, we're available just about everywhere you can listen to and or download and or otherwise consume podcasts. So just to add us to your follows or your lists or your subscriptions, whatever, whatever it is you do, RSS feeds, whatever, we're out there. Find us and make sure we're on it. Because uh, we publish every week, God willing, uh, and um, hope we don't want you to miss a, th a single thing. Uh, you can follow us elsewhere uh, on social media. We're on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, and you'll find a page, a little page devoted to us on Facebook as well. Good Seats Still Available there. Uh, you want to send us some email? Well, we welcome that, of course. Keep it clean and nice. Hopefully positive, constructive criticism, certainly. But, you know, let's keep uh, let's keep the uh, the vitriol down, shall we? We do our best and, you know, we're not perfect. Uh, hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, and on our website, again, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, you can uh, find our little weekly email newsletter subscription button there. Just give us your name and your email address and you will get our little uh, weekly tip sheet as to what is going to transpire in the following week to come. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, of course, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, kind sir, uh, for your efforts this week. And a happy new year to you uh, and happy new year to all of our great listeners. We appreciate it. Hopefully more fun stuff coming your way. Stay tuned in the weeks ahead. Lots of great interviews coming up. Thanks again for your uh, support. And uh, until next week, we'll see you. Bye. Bye.